Today's scripture, you may remain standing for the reading of the word. Today's scripture is from Philippians 3.12 to 4.1. Hear the word of the Lord. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Good to see you this morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. And if you have joined us recently in the last month at some point, During the summer, you will realize that there is a different face. There has been a different face up here teaching the Bible every single Sunday. And you might think if you're new, what is that about? Does this church have a regular pastor, a teaching pastor? We do. He's wearing a flag shirt today over there. Give it up. Sean Myers. Yep. Mm -hmm. See it? Now, the reason we've had a different person up here the last uh, four weeks, including today, is because we make an intentional effort every summer to get you in front of our elders. We are an elder-led church, which means we lead in plurality. Currently, there's five elders, there's five men that lead this church. We get together every Monday, and we pray, and we seek God, and we ask God, where are we going? What should we do? Help us. And then we do our best to listen to each other and lead in those areas. And so we want to make it a point to get those men in front of you so you can get familiar with them, so you can get to know them. And so we do that every summer. And so you heard from Tim Toby four weeks ago. You heard from Vincent Clark a couple weeks ago. You heard from Jim Ellis last week. You'll hear from me today, who I'm an elder. And then you'll hear from our fifth elder, Sean Myers, who's also our lead teaching pastor and our lead pastor here at Redemption Peoria. So just to give you some context for why there's been different people up here throughout the summer, that's the reason why we feel that's really important to you. And let me just say, I'm so thankful for those men that invest their time with us, that spend time praying with us, that seek the Lord for how do we love God and how do we love other people well in the midst of our community, in the midst of our city. I'm so, so thankful for those other four men that we get to sit around the table and try to figure this out together. So thank you. Thank you for praying for us. If uh, some of you have mentioned multiple times that you pray for us, please do. We meet on Monday mornings from 6 to 8 almost every week. And so if you think about it, would you pray for us? We need help. We need help leading. We're all very different, and we're trying to trust the Lord together. So just want to give you some context for why there's been so many different people here uh, as we've been walking through Philippians. Let me pray, if you would pray with me, that God would show up this morning. Father, thanks for your goodness to us. Thanks for your word. I pray you would change us this morning. God, would you change me in the midst of us walking through Philippians chapter 3, 
Would you make us different? Would you make us look more like you? Would you remind us of the things we need to be reminded of? Would you help us forget the things we need to forget? God, it's only by the power of your spirit that that can happen. So we expect you to move this morning. We trust you. We ask you to do it. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you don't already have a Bible open, please open a Bible to Philippians chapter 3. We just heard the text read this morning. Let me give you some context as we jump into the back half of the chapter because Jim Ellis unpacked the first 11 verses last week for us. And really the first 11 verses, Paul is writing to this church and the whole book of Philippians, he's writing to this church in Philippi and he's very close to this church. It's an intimate letter that Paul writes. This was the first church that Paul the apostle plants in Europe. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. And he is very connected to these people. And what he is asking is he writes this letter from prison. He's on house arrest and he's writing back to this church to encourage them. To encourage them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We saw in chapter 1 verse 27. And so in chapter 3 we find this first opposition to this other group that is kind of around this community. And Jim laid that out for us and. Chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, look out for these dogs, these evildoers, these people who mutilate the flesh. And what was happening, just to give you a quick snapshot, because it leads into where we're going to go starting in verse 12, is that there were these people, the Judaizers, that were around this new church, this new community. And the Judaizers were ones that followed the Old Testament law. When Jesus comes onto the scene and says he has fulfilled the law, they're like, well, we want to keep adding to it. So it's kind of this Jesus plus mentality that, yeah, you can be a Christian. Yes, we see how Jesus fits into the equation of the story, but that doesn't mean we don't observe the dietary laws. That doesn't mean you don't get circumcised. You have to keep adding and adding and adding and adding. And Paul says, no, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. That's it. And so he is opposed to this group that has kind of infected the church at this point. And then he lists all these things of like, these guys, basically the Judaizers, thought that they could get their righteousness from what they did, what they brought to the table. And Paul says, like, if anybody can do that, it's me. And then he lists this resume of all these things he's done before he came to Christ that kind of gave him his righteousness. And he says they're rubbish. They don't matter. They don't count. What counts is knowing Christ. That's it. So that's kind of the backdrop as we work our way into verse 12. And what we're going to see here this morning is three things. In verse 12, we're going to see Paul's position, his position in the gospel. And then in verses 13 through 16, we're going to see his posture because of that position. And then in verses 17 through the end of the chapter, we're going to see a plea that he gives to his people in Philippi. It's a lot of P's there in that position, posture, and plea. So let's walk it out. Verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3, it says this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What is Paul talking about? Let's back up to verse 10 to get some context in chapter 3. I don't have it on the screen, but if you have a Bible, look at it. This is what Paul says, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 11, 
that by any means possible, my, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then 12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made us his own. What Paul is saying here is he hasn't obtained the resurrection. And what does that mean that he's striving for that? It's basically he's saying one day, one day everything will be made right again and I will be face to face with my Savior. That's what he's talking about in the resurrection and I'm not there yet. I love this. I think this is beautiful for us to listen to because so many times we hold up as Christians the apostle Paul like he's this perfect person. And he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I still sin. I still live in a broken world. I still wrestle with my heart. If you read Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7, you see that specifically as Paul deals with this and we kind of hold up these Christian leaders on this spiritual pedestal and Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm not perfect. I'm still in process. But then he says, I press on to make it my own. Like I'm striving. Paul uses this language three times. We'll see it. He'll say press on, he'll say strain forward, and he'll say press on again. And this language is actually athletic language. He's using the cultural language of the time. They are in Philippi, and they would be very familiar with athletics and the Roman games. And so there was an athlete that would be running a race. He was singularly focused on getting through that tape, winning the race. And so Paul is using this language of pressing forward. Listen, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I haven't arrived yet, but I am pressing forward towards the goal. See in verse 12, why is he doing that? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is Paul's position. This is really important for us to get, men and women. This is super important. We have to start with Paul's position in Christ before we move to his posture. And I love this fact because what you're going to start to see, if you start moving into your posture before you understand your position, you're going to start pressing on, you're going to start striving, you're going to start doing things. And that's the exact thing Paul is opposing in the Judaizers. He's saying it's not just about working hard. It's not just about having this grind. You have to be positioned in your relationship with Christ first. I love how he says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. That language is really important. Listen to that. Because Christ has made me his own. Paul is saying, I'm not perfect. I didn't do anything to earn this. I didn't do anything to strive to this. But Jesus, in his love, in his grace, reached down to me. And he made me his own. You see the difference there? Christianity is not about you just praying a prayer and doing right things. It's about Jesus, the God of heaven and earth, coming down and grabbing you and taking you and saying, you are mine. We have to be secured in that. We have to be anchored in that. We have to be positioned in that truth to live the Christian life. And Paul understood that. I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. And some of us need to be reminded that Christ has made you his own that you are his child and you need to start living that way. That is his position. But he doesn't just stay there. He has an ongoing posture in the midst of that position. Let's keep reading. Let's 
Go back to verse 12 and keep reading. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Verse 13. But I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One of the things I love to do that I don't get to do very often anymore is to go snowboarding. Any snowboarders, skiers in the house? Anybody? There's a couple of you in here. We do live in the desert, so it's not as easy, but you can shoot up the flag for two hours. You can go there. You can go to sunrise and snowboard. And when my kids started to snowboard, I started to teach them how to snowboard. And one of the first things I taught them is you get into your board. Those of you who are not familiar with the the activity of snowboarding, you strap into your board. So you are positioned into a board that is flat. And what happens is you start going down the mountain. And one of the key things you need to understand if you're snowboarding is your posture. You need to always be in a ready position. You need to always be either on your heels or your toes all the time. Because what happens is if you run flat-footed on a snowboard and you start going down the mountain, you're going to start picking up speed. And what's going to happen is either your lip will start to catch the snow because the mountain is not perfectly downward. It'll start catching the snow. And if you don't make adjustments on your heel or your toe and your posture, you will flip over and you will land on your face. Or the snow will catch on the back end of your board and you will flat land on your back. That's usually what happens when you first go snowboarding to encourage you if you ever want to try it, the first half of the day, the first day, you will be on your back probably the whole time. But you need to learn. It's so important to learn. You always are on your heels or your toes all the time. You need to be in a ready posture of going down the mountain all the time. If you go flat-footed, it's only a matter of time that you will fall on your face. And when I look around at the church and people that call themselves Christians... There don't seem to be too many that have this posture of pursuit. They're kind of just going through their Christian life flat-footed. They're kind of saying, listen, I prayed to receive Christ. I know where I'm going to go when I die. But then you know what? Like I'll kind of maybe go to church or I'll maybe attend something. But they don't have a posture of pursuit of saying, I need to be on my heels or my toes the entire time to work this thing out. And this is what Paul is driving us to. He's saying because he is positioned in Christ, he doesn't just lean back. He doesn't just coast through his spiritual life. He's at the end of his life, in prison. If anybody could coast to the finish line, it would be Paul. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to keep pressing into knowing Jesus. And when you think of your own life spiritually, what is your current faith posture? Are you kind of coasting through your spiritual life? Or do you have a posture of readiness? in the midst of your faith journey. Ephesians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Peter chapter 2, James chapter 4, they all remind us that we are at war. That there is a spiritual battle happening even right now that we don't see. 
use your imagination with me for a second. Imagine that all of us, for some reason, we went to war with another country. America went to war with another country, and everybody in this room, all of us collective, the humanity in this room, we got entered into this really weird draft where every single person in this room, we would have to pack up everything we have as soon as service is done, and we would fly to wherever we are fighting this battle. We would pinch our, pinch our tents. We would put our tents up. We put our tents up, and then the next morning we would have to wake up and we would be sent to the front lines to fight and maybe die for our country. When you wake up tomorrow morning, what is your mentality? Is it probably a little different than what you probably will wake up to tomorrow? I would imagine it would be because your mindset is that you're at war. You could lose your life this morning, but we walk through life and we just forget the reality that we're in a spiritual battle. And Paul is reminding us, he's reminding us not to have a posture of being flat-footed, but that we're at war. And here's what he tells us because of this. He's focused in his pursuit of Jesus. He says there's one thing. There's one thing in the midst of my undistracted pursuit of Jesus. It's one thing. Look down in your Bibles, verse 13, because he actually tells us two things in the midst of his one thing, which is kind of funny. But I think they actually go together. I think to do this one thing really well, it's hand in hand with these two things. Look at what he says. Or not consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Men and women, if you are trying to walk with Jesus, if you get anything out of this time this morning, this is walking out of your Christian faith, forgetting what lies behind, and pressing forward to what lies ahead. This is time and time and time again. And let's get the direct context for what Paul is talking about. What is he forgetting? What is he forgetting? If you look back to the beginning of chapter 3, you see what he's forgetting. He's forgetting this list of everything he did to earn his own righteousness. He's forgetting the things that he clung to that gave him value and worth. And he says, I'm forgetting those. If I'm going to be in a posture of pursuit, I have to forget those. And the literal word in Greek is to lose in your mind. That's what this word forget means. And for us, we have to agree with what Paul is saying is to forget the things that we have built our worth and our identity on before Jesus. Because we all have those things. And the world definitely tells us those are the way you get your worth and your identity and your value is what you do. Here's the equation, the world's equation for worth and identity. It's what you do plus the praise and applause of others. If you do something really well and people like it, they clap and they say, good job, then you feel like you have worth. You feel like you have value. And that is the world's formula that Paul is saying, I'm letting go of that. I'm not playing that game any longer. But I'm going to press forward. And any religion, any idol, anything you seek to gain your value and worth from that operates on this same principle. It's the same principle I just mentioned. Listen, if you do, if you obey, then you will be accepted. That's the world's formula for self-worth. The problem is you can never do enough. You can never do enough. You can never climb enough. You can never run enough. You can never pursue enough. You can never get enough people to like you. It's not possible. 
And the beauty of the gospel is that it flips that equation on its head. And it's not if you obey, you'll be accepted, but it's you are accepted, therefore you obey. And see, the truth of the gospel doesn't negate hard work. It just reorients it. It doesn't mean you come to Christ and you don't do anything anymore. It says you do stuff because you have come to Christ, because Jesus has made you his own. So that's the first thing that Paul does. He forgets what's behind and he moves forward to what's Ahead. Well, what is ahead? He's talking about this idea of being resurrected, right? This idea of being completed. It's this idea of shalom is the word the Bible uses, which means peace, but it's so much more than peace. It's that one day everything will be made right again. Can you imagine that? Everything will be put in its proper place and perspective. No more sin. No more depression, no more anxiety, no more using people, no more people using you. None of it. It's done. No more tears, only joy. And that's where Paul's going. He's saying, I'm forgetting that old system of operation, the world's formula, and I'm going to press forward towards Jesus because one day that will be a reality. And I have to remind myself of that because often I forget it. And Paul was consumed at his old life, his old religious ways, and he needed to be reminded of his new ways. About three weeks ago, I ended up getting a new phone because we have teenagers in my house, and we have three kids. They're almost all teenagers. Well, my older two sons are going to be a sophomore and a freshman in high school. And so it was time for us, we felt like it was time for us to get um, my son, who's a freshman, 14-year-old, a phone as he goes into high school. And so I'm at the store with a guy, and I'm talking through my plan, and it's like this much more to add another line, because currently we have three lines, and we're going to have a fourth. And I was like, I don't want to, like, take a second mortgage on my house to pay for these phones. It's, like, ridiculous. So as we continued to talk, it made more sense for me to cancel my current plan and walk away and my wife to actually become a new customer because if she's a new customer, she gets all these deals and we get all these breaks and great, it's going to be cheaper than what we're paying now. So I was like, I love that idea. Let's go with that plan. So we start moving forward and it's like, okay, well, you're going to have to lose your old phone number. So I was like, that's fine. I can deal with that. Um, Well, I've had that phone number for like 15 years. And I was like, that's going to be a little bit weird. So But I'm like, I need the bottom line of how much it's going to cost me a month. So we make that transition. I get my new phone. And then I realize, like, that old phone number, because I've carried it around with me forever, is like, it's just, like, defaulted into me, you know? So I'm having this interaction, this conversation with this guy I reconnect with. He's like, hey, give me your number. And I start giving him my old number. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not, don't write that down. That's not my, that's my old number. I need to give you my new number. I go to get tires on my car, and the guy says, okay, what's your number? I'll text you when it's done. I start giving him my old number, and he's like, I don't even know my new number at this point. Like, I don't even know what it is. And then even in my computer, I'm booking a flight to go somewhere, and it just defaults. I put the first six in, and it just defaults to my old number. And because I've had the number for 15 years, it's harder for me to forget that number and remember my new one. My son, who's had his phone for a year, the older son, he's like, I don't care. It doesn't matter. 
And so the same is true with us. As we have been operating these old systems of self-worth and identity, the longer you've been doing that, the harder, the more effort it's going to take to press forward and forget those old things and replace them with the new. But that's exactly what we need to do if we're going to try and live the Christian life. We have to replace those old habits. And again, God shows you what those things are. He says, hey, this is the new way of thinking. You need to have your mindsets on this thing. And for me personally, one of the ways it gets flushed out, Jim did this great job uh, last week of listing all these things of righteousness. If you were here, he talked about there's different ways that we feel right about each other. And you can categorize them. You could have theological righteousness, thinking you know more about the Bible than the other person. You could have family righteousness. I parent my kids better than you. You could have job righteousness, schedule righteousness. He lists all these different forms of righteousness that makes you feel like you're right and the other person is wrong. It makes you feel like you have worth. And when I started thinking about that list as I listened to that sermon I thought for me, man, I have excellence righteousness. And here's what I mean by that. Growing up, I moved around a ton. We just moved different state to state and for different job opportunities and things like that. And I was a pretty emotional child. And my parents didn't know what to do with me. They're like, I don't know. I don't know what to do with him. Like he's He's got problems. And so my parents did the best they could. So this is not a knock on my folks. But what started to happen because we moved and then my parents split and all these different things, I started to have this like fear of abandonment. And I, don't, I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it until later in life, but I started to feel like everybody's going to leave me. And so what I started to do to combat that is I started to do things really, really well. Because I had this illusion in my mind, this illusion of control, that if I do this so good, you won't leave me. And what it led in is almost this like slavery of perfection. Now, is it wrong to do things with excellence? No. The Bible calls us to do things with excellence. But what started to happen is I started to gain my righteousness from how I did things. And so it led to this crooked way of thinking about things and not appreciating other people and not giving grace to myself and not giving grace to others. It was bondage. I wasn't living out the gospel. God had to change me and set me free from that. And so even now, I'm still having to replace the old, forget the old. Listen, if something doesn't go exactly how I want, that's okay. Like it takes energy for me to really believe that. Because of this hard wiring and all these years of doing it one way. And I have to forget those things. And I have to press forward to the reality that, you know what, as a follower of Jesus, I'm never going to be abandoned again. My father will never leave me. So now I operate in a different posture because of that position. I don't have to live in fear anymore. I don't have to do everything exactly right and perfect anymore. It leads to freedom how God wants me to live. So we need to have this continual posture because of our position in Christ. And I love what Paul says here in the next part. Let's start again in 13, 14, and they'll pick up in 15. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, let those who are mature think this way. 
And if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Verse 16, let us only hold true to what we have attained. Love verse 15, verse 15 the, the word mature in the original language is actually the adjective perfect. It's actually the adjective perfect. So what Paul is basically saying is if you're really perfect, you realize you're not yet perfect. And you know what? If you start to just strive and strive and press on and move forward and strive and you start to make it about you again, like trust that God is actually going to reveal what he needs to reveal to you. That's what he says in the back end of verse 15, which is so comforting to me that God is going to take care of it. He will reveal what he needs to reveal for you to know your next step. It's an echo to what Paul says earlier in the letter in verse one, or chapter 1, verse 6, when he says that, uh, that he will complete the work that he has began in you to the day of Christ Jesus. Then verse 16, if we're going to hold true to anything, let us hold true to the gospel, the one thing that we have attained. So that's Paul's position. His position is rooted in Christ because Christ has made him his own. That gives him a posture of not just leaning back, but leaning forward to what? To forget what lies behind and to press on to what lies ahead, to be reminded of the truth of the gospel and to forget the way he used to operate in self-righteousness. And then this is his plea through the rest of the chapter. Because this is true, this is his, his plea to his people. He says this in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul is saying, listen. And you'll hear it in verse 18, like he has this empathetic voice. It's not like it's just some random person he's telling. He's like, it's like a father to a son. He's like, listen, listen. There is one road that leads to destruction and it's wide and everybody travels down that road and that's the natural default because of your heart of sin. And I'm telling you, don't go down that road. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. He's not puffing himself up. He already said, I'm not perfect. I'm not doing this right, but I'm gonna go down this road and it's narrow and it's hard. And I'm saying, follow me as I go down this road. I love the language he uses as well. He says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And so he's, Paul's not saying, don't just look at me. There's other people around you that are walking out this faith. They're walking down the narrow road. And you need to keep your eyes on them as well. Men and women, this is such a plea for us to be in community to be around other people. We don't say do community just so you can check a box and get into somebody's home. No, we want you to understand everybody else is walking this direction in your life and you need to be around people that are walking down this road. Keep your eyes on them. This is his plea to his people. Verse 18, he says, For many whom I have told you now and tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the, Christ, of the cross. He's saying, listen, this road is wide and this road is an enemy of the cross. What does it mean to be an enemy of the cross? It's basically you're saying that you're not going to receive what Jesus is offering you. This grace, this beauty, this freedom. No, I'll do it on my own. I don't want that way. I want this way. And then he goes and he talks about in verse 19 what it looks like, the people that have 
enemies, that there are enemies of the cross. Verse 19, it says their end is destruction, this wide road. It will lead at the end of the day to death. That one day they will stop breathing and everything that is good and right and beautiful that they're even experiencing now because of God's common grace will be gone. And they will be separated eternally from God. If you go down that road, their end is destruction. Verse 19, their God is their belly. Their God, what they chase after, what they give worth to is their appetites. It's whatever they see, they go and do. It says they glory in their shame. They glory and give weight to things that they should be ashamed about that aren't the ways of the Lord with their minds set on earthly things. So it's even good for us Christians to ask this question like, when we wake up in the morning, again, is our posture in a war mentality or are our minds set on earthly things? When you wake up in the morning, what gets you out of bed? Is your primary thing that gets you out of bed to make money? To have security? Is your primary thing to get you out of bed to keep your kids safe if you're a mom? Is your primary thing to have influence with other people? Is your primary thing to get a lot of likes on social media? Is your primary reason for getting out of bed to get a spouse? Now, a lot of those things aren't bad things, but if they're your primary things, your mind are set on earthly things. What does it look like? as he says in verse 20, to be a citizen of heaven, to have your mind set on heavenly things. Instead of asking those questions about money or a spouse or social media, what it could look like to have you wake up and say, how can I love people more today? Maybe my mind is focused on that. What would it look like What would it look like for me to add value to somebody else today? What would it look like for me to be less dependent on myself and more dependent on my Father and the Spirit today? What would it look like to love people well? What would it look like to eagerly await the return of Jesus? When you wake up in the morning, do you eagerly await the return of Jesus? I'm telling you, I don't. And I'm a pastor. Do you eagerly await, and you can't wait until he returns and everything is made right again. This is the mindset of Paul. He's saying, listen, this is important. We have to be reminded. This is my plea to you. Have your mind set on earthly, not earthly things, but heavenly things. Be a citizen of heaven. Await Jesus coming back. That's what he says in verse 20 and 21. That he can't wait for the day. That's going to be all made right again. For us, we need to be rooted in our position in Christ. And because of that, that gives us a posture of pressing forward, forgetting what was before and pressing on to what's ahead. And then we should agree with Paul's plea for us to live as citizens of heaven. And he finishes out this section and the start of chapter 4, verse 1, when he says this, Therefore, because all this is true, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. The only reason we can stand firm, the only shot we have at standing firm is because of the Father's love for us, the Spirit's power in us, and the person of Jesus who went before us. The only chance we have of standing firm in this Christian life.
And as we think about Paul saying, imitate me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, so he says specifically, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And as we look at this text and we see his position, we see Paul's uh, posture and we see his plea, he's actually imitating Jesus in the midst of his words. Because when you think about Jesus' position, his posture and his plea, you think of his position in his father and the love of his father as he gets baptized right before he starts his public ministry. It says that the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus anchors himself. He roots himself in this position of the love of the father. He doesn't get uh, turned around from what other people think of him, even his own followers. He's saying, listen, I am positioned because of what the father says is true about me. And because of that, that gives him a posture. If anybody has a posture in the scriptures that we need to imitate, it's Jesus. Jesus was in perfect community, in perfect community with the father and the spirit in heaven, a perfect place. And he doesn't just lean back. Instead, he moves into our place, moves into a body that is broken and identifies with us. His posture is continually, I will only do the will of the Father. That is what I am going to do. That is my posture. If anybody has posture, he is arrested. Right before he's arrested, he's in the garden. And he doesn't want to go to the cross because he knows the physical anguish. He knows the spiritual anguish it's going to cause him. But he says what? Not my will, but your will be done. If anybody has a posture to press forward, it's Jesus. And we see in Philippians chapter 2, one chapter before, this is Jesus' posture. He empties himself, considers others better than himself. He doesn't hold equality with God, something to be grasped. And we need to do the same. And so Jesus has a position in the Father's love. He has a posture to move forward in obedience to the Father. And then he has a plea. Jesus has a plea for the people he interacts with, whether they're the religious leaders or they're the socially um, discounted. He has a plea to you and I even today, and it's two words, and it radiates through the whole pages of the Bible. He has a plea for us today to hear this morning, Christian and non-Christian. Here's his plea. It's two words. You ready? Follow me. That's Jesus' plea. Would you follow me? Follow me. I've got life for you. I'm going to teach you what it looks like to be a human again. You're going to experience love and joy and freedom if you follow me. May we be men and women that wake up reminding ourselves of that truth, that we would ask the Spirit, that we would pray, that we would follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thanks that we are so secure if we have a relationship with you that we can rest in that goodness and move forward in forgetting the things of the past and remembering the goodness and the things that lie ahead. We so need to be reminded of that because we are in a tidal wave of culture that tells us otherwise. Spirit, I pray you would remind us of that even this morning. We love you and we trust you. We ask that you would change us and we pray this in your son's name, amen.